I want to talk to you this morning out of the simply the first 11 verses of this 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So if you'll just follow along, read along with me these 11 verses. Paul writes, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Is it important to be reminded? Yes, even Paul had a ministry of reminding. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. If you notice the title of my message this morning is, Have You Believed in Vain? This is something I think is on the heart of every single pastor, preacher, teacher of the Bible. The people who hear, people who listen, is there an effect in their life or have they listened and only believed in vain? So this is imperative for the Apostle Paul, for that congregation and for you and I. He goes on and he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the most important thing I could ever have have told you. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. Paul, in in this chapter of 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, he is... He is approaching, if you will, the climax of his message to that congregation and indeed to all Christians of every generation who would follow after them. From many different angles, Paul has challenged the Corinthians concerning the conditions that existed in their fellowship. He revealed the emptiness of their supposed brilliance in philosophy. He preached to them the message of the cross. He'd rebuke them for their errors of doctrine and practice. And he proclaimed to them the ultimate triumph of love. In all this, he has presented to them what he calls in verse 1, the gospel I preached to you. All that he said was based on and encompassed and emanated from the gospel that he preached to you. The one thing that matters as he looks back now on his ministry to the Corinthians is whether they have really received the gospel. 
How many of them have really entered by the way of the narrow gate? How many of them are really on that narrow road that leads to life? And now the time has come for Paul to confirm, indeed, I think even to challenge the Corinthians regarding their profession of faith, their professed belief. And to bring that about, he he demonstrates that this gospel of ours is based upon facts. It's not just theoretical. It's based upon facts, historical facts. Facts concerning which there is indisputable evidence. So there is, in effect, no excuse for them to fail to receive and to believe. Not only is the gospel based upon facts, but the gospel has immense personal implications for all of us. You have listened to the facts of the gospel, he says in verse 1. If you have received it, then you are standing in the power of the gospel. You are, in effect, saved. But an awful possibility grips Paul's thinking. As he considers that the Corinthians may, after all, only have believed in vain. This, of course, all depends on whether their faith has been resting upon the truth, on the facts, and upon the evidence. And the only way to know that is if it has led to action in their life. So what are the facts? First of all, that which is first in order of importance, he says, I passed on to you. The most important things. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 once again. He says, for what I received. I didn't make this up. This is not just off the top of my head. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What is it that he passed on? What are the facts? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Beloved, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Verses 3 and 4 encompass the whole gospel in a nutshell. The story, if you will, the narrative very simply told is that there was a man who lived in an obscure part of the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And that he was crucified outside Jerusalem. He was buried in a secured tomb. He didn't just disappear. On the third day, he rose again. That's the simple story. That's the simple narrative But when I recognize that this man in the narrative was none other than the Christ, the anointed Son of God, and that he died, as Paul says, for our sins, that he was buried and that his body was raised on the third day, then this narrative, this story becomes the gospel. To understand the difference between a simple story 
and the gospel means that you understand who this man is and why he died, what this is really all about. These facts are inevitably linked together. If you take any one of them away, you have no gospel. A cross without a resurrection is no gospel. These things, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. They constitute the basic fundamental elements of our Christian faith. Without them, you have no Christian faith. These are absolutely essential. Twelve simple men, most of them fishermen. Twelve simple men could never have turned the world upside down unless these facts were true. But what about the evidence for these facts? What about the evidence? I think it's fair to say that we have absolutely no right to expect anyone should believe the gospel unless there's evidence that supports the facts, that backs them up. Christianity is not just a blind leap in the dark. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It makes sense. There's evidence to back up the facts. One line of evidence is that the death of Jesus Christ must, must have been related to our sin. It must have been related to our sin. Paul tells us in another place, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no single person that can say, not me, I'm, I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are. Give me a few minutes with you and I'll demonstrate it to you. You are a liar. <laughs> You are a murderer. You are a thief. You are a blasphemer. All of us. All of us. The Bible says that death, death is not simply physical cessation from existence. No, death is separation. First of all, it's separation from God. It's separation from ourself. We have a name for that. We call it schizophrenia. It's separation from one another. It's separation from everything we know in our existence. We live lives, though we hunger to not be separated, our lives are separated. Sin and death have done this. You go back to Genesis chapter 2. God told the original pair. He told Adam, actually. and He said, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree that I command you not to eat from, that's the day you will die. That's the day you'll be separated. You'll be separated from me. You'll be separated from yourself. You'll be separated from your neighbor. And you'll be separated from all creation. You see, if these things are true, if these things are true, then Jesus should never have died. Why? Clearly, his death was not related to his own sin. Because even his worst enemies had to admit that he was without fault. Nevertheless, he died. And for that, there is no other explanation unless you connect his death 
with the fact of sin that is our sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What a, what a transaction. We go back to the very beginning, back to that Genesis passage in chapter three. The very beginning when God spoke to the serpent. That's when redemption history began. The whole Old Testament is a testimony of God's redeeming purposes, his redeeming power to save us. And back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will, you will crush his head, and he will only strike your heel. There's going to be combat. There's going to be warfare. Christ was to suffer injury, but the wound that he would inflict on Satan at the cross would be final and it would be fatal. From the very beginning, you see, of redemption history and the redemption story, we can trace all through the Old Testament the fact, as the Bible says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We are healed spiritually. We are restored to him spiritually. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, he died for us. He died for our sin. This is the evidence, Paul says, according to the scriptures. In that tremendous moment when Jesus cried out, I think with a, with a shout of victory, when he cried out that one simple phrase, it is finished. In that very moment, the hand of God stretched forth from heaven. And what happened? Anybody remember? In the temple, the curtain that separated, separated the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, that curtain was what? It was torn from top to bottom. The picture was God's presence was now open. All could come, all could come into God's presence, unimpeded because of what Jesus had done. Now, because of what happened at the cross, there is now a way to God. We don't need a high priest. We have our high priest now. Jesus, who enters into the veil through his shed blood. He is the one who's making intercession for us. You see, the evidence that he died for our sins is indisputable. But what about the evidence for his resurrection? What about that evidence? I want to suggest to you that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you just cannot explain the existence of the church at all. You can't. You say, wait a minute. 
What about all these other religious movements? They are not the church. The church is unique, radically different from every other religious philosophy or system or cult or group. They could be growing like wildfire, but they're not the church. The existence of the church is dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? What makes us different? Because it's only Christians who are imbued with the Spirit of God living in them. It's only Christians who lay down their life for their neighbor. It's only Christians who love their enemy. It's only Christians who practice this kind of life, who live this kind of life. It's only Christians who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to even do this, motivated by the Holy Spirit. It's only Christians. Jesus says that the, the way to life is narrow, doesn't he? You must enter through the narrow gate and the narrow way and few find it. The popularity of the movement, the, the size of the movement doesn't determine the truth of it. Christians are different. You cannot explain this unique group called the church apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It just simply wouldn't exist. We'd just be trampled underfoot and off into oblivion. Except it were for the power of God moving us. Isn't that true? It was the resurrection had revitalized that little group of disciples. Immediately after Calvary, they were a disillusioned bunch, weren't they? They were fearful, weren't they? They were about to separate and go their own ways. Peter says, I'm going fishing. Their fellowship was collapsing. The birth and the growth of the church is one tremendous evidence that Jesus Christ rose again. The church is the most awesome thing on the face of this earth. The church of Jesus Christ. You have to stand in awe of the church of Jesus Christ. That it keeps marching, it keeps moving, it keeps growing and garnering new members, and it keeps granting hope and life. Once again, Paul says that Christ was buried, but that he was raised again according to the scriptures. Not only did he die for our sins according to the scriptures, but he was raised according to the scriptures. Let me read to you once again from Isaiah chapter 53. It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Though he suffered, though he died, though he was buried, he will rise again. He will see life. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. 
And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How wonderful it is when someone comes to your aid and you're in a jam who intercedes on your behalf. Isn't that true? How much more than Jesus who intercedes on our behalf and redeems us. Do we need redeeming church? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not only is there the evidence of the existence of the church itself to support the resurrection, not only the evidence of the scriptures or from the scriptures, but also we have the evidence of the disciples themselves. Think about these guys. They were absolutely incredulous at his resurrection. They were not ready yet to believe that message that they were about to spread throughout the world. Jesus himself said they were slow of heart to believe. (laughs) It's kind of like us. Duh. Slow of heart to believe. But when it dawns on you, when you see it, I was blind, but now I see. Wow, does that change your life? Although they were to be responsible for proclaiming the Christian message, they began by simply admitting they didn't believe it. They didn't get it. Is he really alive? Now, some people have suggested that those early disciples were just being fools. They knew the story was false. They were perpetuating this false notion that Jesus had risen. But would they ever have allowed themselves, do you think, to be martyred for the sake of something they knew was not the truth? Hardly. If only the Jews or the Romans could have produced the body of Jesus, then all these rumors would have been quieted. But they could not produce it. There's also the evidence, Paul points us to, of the personal appearances that the risen Lord made. We're told in verse 5 that he appeared to Peter. In an interview about which we know absolutely nothing, Peter met the risen Jesus face to face. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that interview. And then in the second half of verse 5, Paul records, and then he appeared to the twelve. Twice in the Gospels is the record that his disciples met their risen Lord. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom were still living. If you could go from Corinth up to Palestine, you could meet and talk to these eyewitnesses who saw him, who touched him, who heard him. And then in verse 8, and last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. One never to be forgotten day. 
never to be forgotten. When Paul was on his way to Damascus to continue his persecution of that young church, God met him in Jesus Christ and confronted him with these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul said, who are you, sir? This had to be the most electric moment in all of human history. I am Jesus. (laughs) Can you remember the day when you first met him? When he came to you and you had that aha moment? This is what Paul experienced. And he was blind for three days, wasn't he? I think he needed those three days to redo his categories. (laughs) Oh man, I've been wrong all this time. I've been wrong all this time. So Paul has marshaled, if you will, all of his evidences for the gospel. The facts are unshakable. But Paul's concern is to know how far these facts have been effective and how the Corinthians have responded now to this message of the gospel. What effect in their life? This is the same same vital factor for us today and, and for every succeeding generation of the church. How far have you and I responded to the implications of this dynamic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We may not dispute the facts of the gospel. But see, what is the result in our life? What's the result in our life? I want to suggest to you that there are three very, very essential implications of the gospel. The first one, to Paul. There was a recognition of his own sinfulness. You cannot, will not receive the gospel, the good news, unless you know you have a need. Paul considered himself faultless, righteous. Expounds his credentials in Philippians chapter 3. We'll look at it in just a minute. But he recognized his own sinfulness. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me of our 15th chapter. He says, Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. What's implied in that phrase, I persecuted the church of God? Well, let me read to you from his own testimony in the book of Acts, recorded before Herod Agrippa. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Wow. 
Listen to his own statement about himself in Philippians chapter 3. Talking about his credentials, if you will. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Don't we put our, our confidence in our flesh, our talents, abilities, our education, station life. And we can very easily put our full confidence in those things. And he says, I have every reason to do so. He says, listen to my credentials. If anyone, thinks, anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And then he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. None of that matters anymore. I could care less about that stuff. The only thing that matters to me is to know Christ. He's admitting, in effect, he did not even deserve to meet the Lord at all. The thing that shook Paul to the core as he was confronted with the truth of the resurrection was a recognition of his own sin. Now when I talk about sin, I'm not talking about simply the external expressions of sin. Stuff that we do that we ought not to do. Stuff that we don't do that we ought to do. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the very core, the very heart of sin. And Paul is addressing the downright arrogance of his prideful heart. This is sin at its very root. My own pride. My own egotistical self and selfishness. Anybody here, don't even raise your hands. Anybody here, just think with me rhetorically. Found yourself being selfish? Self-absorbed? But what about me? I deserve. Yeah, you deserve hell. Truth be known. When Paul saw that Jesus was alive, when he was confronted by the risen Lord and the resurrection, he saw then, in that very instant, what a stubborn, shallow, proud, egotistical creature he was. And he fell on his face before his risen Savior. Beloved, unless this implication has reached you and I, we are not Christian. No matter what we say, we believe. You see, it's the crossing out of the capital I. Isn't that our favorite word? I. It's the crossing out of the capital I when we begin to recognize sin and what sin really is. The wretched, arrogant, know-it-all independence of our own selfishness and our own self-will. Gosh, it's always there with me. Battling it all the time. But I've got to recognize it. Have you recognized your own sinfulness and been willing to repent? God, save me from myself. 
And that leads to our second implication of the gospel, and that's a revolution of character. In other words, this, this recognition of my sinfulness should result in some kind of change. And I've described that as a revolution of character. He writes in verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. He continues his own personal testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Listen to what he says. What, a, what is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Can we say that? I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. How many many would say that? I want to know Christ. I want to know him more and more. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Not everybody. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) But notice he doesn't stop there. And want to know him, what? In the fellowship of his suffering. Oh, I like the first two parts. That third one, I'm not too sure about. That's when we come skidding to a stop. You're never really going to know him fully. Unless there's a revolution of your character. And that comes through enjoining and sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. The New Testament is replete with, with passages that speak about the redemptive effect of suffering in our life. How it clarifies our faith. How it revolutionizes our character. It pleased God. It pleased God to reveal His Son in Paul. It pleases God to reveal His Son in you and I. Are we becoming more like Jesus? That's the point. We look at each other and say, my, my, I like you better. (laughs) You are really changing. Something's different about you. It pleases God to reveal his son in us. You see, the apostle Paul's life was revolutionized. It was revolutionized in character, personality through the gospel. He was being conformed to the very likeness of Jesus. What's the main concern of your life? What is the main concern of your life? Think about that for a second. Is the main concern that you might be conformed to the very likeness and image of Jesus? Or is that a peripheral concern? I suggest to you it should be our main concern. I want to be more like Jesus. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. I want whatever it takes, make me like Jesus. Could we be brave enough to make that our our testimony and our very first concern? You see, a recognition of sin then would necessarily 
involve revolution of character and habit. But we don't stop there. There's a third implication of the gospel. In Paul's life, it was a redirection of his energy. A redirection. Was Paul zealous? Oh, absolutely. We read his testimony, how he he was nonstop persecuting the church. He would go to the ends of the earth, foreign cities, to ferret out these people. He says, I worked harder. Again, we read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Notice, over over here in Corinthians, he says, I worked harder. Over here in Philippians, he says, I'm straining, straining forward to be like Jesus. I'm straining forward to see that his will is fulfilled in my life. Am I making sense here? Paul doesn't say that he's attained it yet. He doesn't say that he's perfect. But this is his goal. This is his ambition as he traveled on that narrow road to heaven. What's the ambition of our life as Christians? What's the main goal of our life as Christians? It's as if Paul can see the pearly gates beginning to open. It's as if he he can just anticipate finally now seeing Jesus face to face. This truth of the risen Jesus has so gripped him that he's straining ahead, straining forward. He has given himself supremely to the things that God has given him to do. Above everything else, that means making known his wonderful Lord. But once again, he says, it is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. You see, it's the grace of God in our life that draws us, that strengthens us, that propels us. It's the grace of God. Our part is to trust him. Our part is to say, yes, Lord, okay, Lord. And his grace then moves in us and through us. In fact, in verse 10, if you'll notice, three times he references the grace of God. It's the grace of God. I am what I am by God's grace. And his grace was not without effect. Has the gospel got hold of you? Really? Has it got hold of you? Or you simply acknowledge it. Has it got hold of you? Is it just a theory to you? I promise you. I promise you, unless in your life there has been a recognition of sin, as we've described, which has brought you to your face before Jesus Christ, you are not saved. It's all just being religious. Until there has come a moment in your experience when God has shown you that sin is not just being immoral, not just being wrong, not just falling short, 
But sin is basically self in all of its ugliness. Unless that happens, you know nothing of salvation. You may be religious, but you know nothing of salvation. If you can say, yes, yes, pastor, I have come to recognize sin to be what God says it is. And I have been broken. And I have repented. Then the question becomes, has there been a revolution of character? Has Jesus Christ, your indwelling Lord, begun to form himself in you? Are you changing? Are you looking more and more like him? If there has been a revolution of character and manner of life, then has there been a redirection of your energy? If there have not been these three things, then you may have believed in vain. Paul was a Pharisee. He was religiously fundamental with the best of them. But until these things happened in his own life, there was no new birth. There was no real Christian experience. Nothing to take him through the gates of heaven. Beloved, I hope and pray that on this Easter Sunday morning, the Lord speak to each and every one of us through his word and take us from the sidelines of Christianity into that more abundant labor with Paul. As Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. I hope and pray that the passion and the enthusiasm that was once used in our worldliness, in our worldly pursuits, even as we rejected Christ, that that passion and enthusiasm might be poured out for the kingdom of God and for the salvation of souls. Why? Why? Simply because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for saving us. Jesus, thank you for taking our sins and our guilt and our grief upon yourself. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you that even while we were your enemies, you died for us. We fully acknowledge we did not deserve this great kindness, this great grace, but we are blessed. We humble ourselves before you again this morning, acknowledging you. Lord, we pray have your way in us. Continue to turn our hearts more fully towards you. Grant us, Lord, the grace necessary to live this life for your glory. Open our eyes, Lord, to those things that are more important to us than knowing you and knowing the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. God, help us 
to more fully embrace your will and your kingdom. Only because we have the confidence to know that the resurrection is true and that one day we will see you face to face. God, we love you this morning. Thank you that you're our heavenly Papa. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen and amen and amen. Turn to your neighbor, if you would. Pronounce another blessing on your neighbor. And if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. And let's stand together and sing his praises. If, if there are any elders, elders, I'd like to uh, ask you to come and uh, prepare to pray for those who are in need as we sing to God.